Jesus gives us a parable, uh, well, not a parable, uh, we have a story in the gospel where Jesus heals lepers, and um, not all of them return. One returns, and Jesus says, where, where are the rest? And that one showed up, and he did what was the proper response. He worshiped and thanked Jesus for his grace. May we be a people like that, that as we see God's goodness and grace to us from food on the table to being patient with us on our journeys home, that we would stop and say thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for being with us again, and if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to Acts chapter 17, Acts 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, but my focus is going to be on uh, Paul and Thessalonica. There's, a, there's some themes that, that go between Thessalonica and Berea, and I also want you to keep your thumbs on 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is one of my favorite New Testament epistles. And so I think you have to read Acts 17 alongside of 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. So I'll be going there a little in the sermon, but this is God's word. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. They are saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city uh, authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us, that it has been preserved through the ages. We thank you that there is one ultimate author of scripture, and it is God. 
And we thank you, Lord, the same Lord who spoke all things into existence from nothing. The same God who sent Messiah is the same God who breathed out your word and carried men along that they might write your thoughts. Father, I pray as we approach your scriptures that we would do so with a sense of reverence and honor and gratitude and awe. I pray, Lord, that we would hide your word in our hearts that we would not sin against you. I pray, O Lord, that we would be doers of your word and not only hearers. I pray, O Lord, that you will make your word as sweet to us, sweeter than even honey, honey from the choicest honeycomb. And above all, Lord, I pray that Jesus will be exalted, that we would leave here, Lord, uh, a people who have uh, understood that we have been in the presence of the Almighty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at our passage this morning, I want us to think about it through the lens of becoming better witnesses of Jesus to a watching world. There's an article by Janelle Jones in Frontiers of Psychology, and in that article, she speaks about the multiple identities that many of us carry in our day-to-day living and how we navigate the complexities of those multiple identities. For example, one woman may be a sibling, a daughter, a friend, a mother, a grandmother, a United States citizen, and an employer that she's wearing all of those hats. And life really is about how do we navigate these things? And and there are blessings or or responsibilities that, that come with each of those identities. This woman who is a friend to another woman should show up when her friend is walking through the valley of sadness, should be there for the joy of another sibling when they are getting married should help care for an aging parent, should be there when their own child has their first child. Somehow she still needs to show up and go to work and exercise her civic duties. They are responsibilities that come with those identities. And at the same time, there are benefits from those identities that she can rest at night knowing that the government is not toppling over that she has income deposited in her account on the 1st and the 15th, that she experiences the joy of little feet pittering and pattering through the home, that she gleans from the wisdom of her parents, that, that she has the benefit of a spouse and a companion, and she finds the joy in going to happy hour with her best friends, that those multiple identities bring responsibilities, but they also bring benefits and blessings. And learning to live wisely is learning to navigate these things. There are some times or some seasons in life where the demands of one make the other demands kind of fall back into the background. And there are other times when the blessings from a new child or a new marriage that they loom really large, simply put, we accrue or we earn multiple identities. They come with blessings and they come with responsibilities. As you think about the book of Acts, it reminds us that we have inherited an identity, a new identity, 
It's been given to us. We haven't worked for this identity. You can work for some identities. You can work to become a college graduate. Just work hard enough, make high enough on the ACT. You can work and earn that. But, but some identities are conveyed upon you. You inherit them. And what the gospel says is you have inherited a new identity in Jesus. You are now a son and a daughter of the king. You have peace of conscience. You have hope hope, you have forgiveness of sins, you are in communion with the creator and the sustainer of the universe, you know how all time and space ends, we will be in the presence of God Almighty forever, and there is no weeping, no sorrow, no sadness, these things are given to you by Jesus Christ, and it's ours to enjoy. But this new identity also comes with responsibilities, doesn't it? That Acts is simultaneously telling us to enjoy the new status. And how we enjoy the new status is through worship. It's through the word. It's through regularly meeting with God's people and the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the prayers that we're called to be generous with our possessions and generous with our very own homes. These are ways in which we enjoy our citizenship. And yet, we're also called for responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is to be a witness of Jesus to the watching world. And in our reflection quote, this is what Pastor Rich Veladas speaks about. He introduces tension. And haven't we felt that? We're a child of God. And on the one hand, there are aspects of our new identity that are monastic, if I could use that word. Prayer communion, enjoying the body, meditating on his word in the privacy of our own homes, getting to know one another in the body. Those are sort of monastic rhythms that come with our identity. But there's another aspect that is not monastic. It is missional. And it pushes us out into the world. It pushes us out into darkness. It compels us to open our mouths and to declare the excellencies of the one who has called us from darkness into his light. And I think what Acts 17 does for us this morning is it helps us to become better at that. That when we move from monastery to mission, when we are compelled by God's grace to speak the truth and to witness and to be witnesses of Jesus to a world, Acts 17, I think, is going to help us become better. Now, there is a sense in which no one perfectly keeps God's commands. There was one perfect missionary, and his name is Jesus. And there is much grace for all of us who fail miserably in the area of missions that we could all pray for a little more boldness, a little more courage, a little more intentionality, a little more thoughtfulness as we seek to be witnesses. And for those of us who fail, I want you to hear me say that there is so much grace for you. But I think we have to treat the command to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth 
in the same way that we treat the other commands of God. There is grace when we fail, but don't we want to be more holy? Don't we want to grow in grace? And that's what I think this passage is going to help us. It's going to help us to grow in being better witnesses of Jesus to a watching world. I think this text is dominated by a series of contrasts. There's a contrast between the conduct of Paul and his team and the conduct of the Jews in the city of Thessalonica. There's a contrast between the words of God the scriptures that you see Paul reasoning over and over again, and the decrees of Caesar, the words of Caesar. And there's a contrast between King Jesus and the emperor in Rome. That this this section is built around contrast. And so here's what I want to tell you this morning, that if we would be better witnesses for Jesus, We offer to the world a better way of living, a better word of truth, and a better king. That's what we offer the world, a better way of living, and it is an apologetic. A better word and a better king. Let's look at the first thing. We offer to the world a better way of living. So last week I tried to convince you when Paul was in Philippi, that there were five or six movements where he is practicing humility. And we would be tempted to think that that was just kind of a one-off thing. This is just kind of what Paul did when he was in Philippi. And what I want to convince you of this morning is that's not true. That, that, That Paul's conduct by the grace of God was just better than the world around him. Now, turn over to 1 Thessalonians 2. And if if you don't turn, don't worry about it. I'm about to read it to you. Well, a part of it to you. Now, 1 Thessalonians 2. Now, scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's first penned epistle. And when you read Acts 17, the way things shake up, Paul has to be taken out of the city at night and sent off. And so we think that as soon as he gets to maybe Athens or some other city, he then writes the letter back to him. Because when you read 1 Thessalonians, it seeps of Acts 17. So this is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1. He says, for you ourselves know, brother, that brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, Where did Paul come before he went to Thessalonica? Last week he was in Philippi. So when you get to 1 Thessalonians 2, he's recounting, hey, we went to Philippi and then we came to you. Now, look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. He says, and we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. Look at verse 10, and this is where you ought to underline it if you're in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, you are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. You hear what Paul is saying? In his absence, 
He says, remember our conduct. Remember how we treated you. Remember how we acted when we were in your midst. If you are struggling to believe the word, remember our actions. Remember how we behaved when we were with you. So where's the contrast? The contrast is going to be between Paul and those who were jealous of Paul. And what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians, he says, look, don't listen to them. Think about how we acted when we were there. So what does Paul do when he gets to Thessalonica? The first thing, it says, as was his custom, he went to the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day. You guys, this had to be traumatic. This was a trigger. Because this is the third city that Paul goes to on the Sabbath day to go to a synagogue. What happened to him in Philippi and what happened to him in Antioch of Pisidia? He was beaten on the Sabbath day, beaten because he went into a Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel. That's a trigger. Have you ever had anything happen on a day or by a person? And all of a sudden you relive that event on that day that that for Paul to go back into that place on that day, I'm imagining he's like, Lord, I know I'm going to get my head beat in again today. And I'm still going to go. It doesn't say he just showed up. It says he went there for three Sabbaths, which means that he was there for three weeks doing the same thing, going to the same place. Now, I don't think that his ministry in Thessalonica ended after those three weeks. I actually think, based on the text and based on what you see in 1 Thessalonians, that those were the first three weeks he was there. Once people came to faith, he did the same thing he did in Philippi. He found a home, and a home became the outpost for ministry. Well, whose home did he go to? The text tells us a man named Jason took them in. Well, what did Paul do as he continued to pastor the church from Jason's home in in Thessalonica? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians what he did. He says, you remember our labor and toil. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to you. You hear what he's saying? I wasn't greedy, and I asked you for nothing. I preached the gospel week in and week out, and I held a job down. And that's in contrast to what's happening in Thessalonica, because you'll notice that the Jews were jealous, and the Jews who did not believe caused an uproar. And the Jews who were jealous, it says they went and they found some wicked men of rabble. Now, what does that mean? That word there for the wicked men of rabble, it means the lazy men who did not work, who stood in the marketplace all day long waiting to cause trouble. And that's what Paul says they did. Look at the Jews. They cast their lots with the evil men of the city looking for trouble who did not work. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you know what Paul tells them? He says, I admonish you to work with your own hands so that you will not be dependent upon anyone. Now, what's happening there? Paul is saying, look, I wasn't like them. I didn't come there and hurt anyone. I didn't come there and cause trouble. 
I didn't come there and cast my lot with the evil. I didn't come there and try to swindle you out of money. I didn't come there and, and was impatient with you. I didn't come there and kick my feet up and just try to do a hustle. I didn't come there and cause violence. I did not come to you this way. In other words, what he's saying is, remember our life, remember our conduct, remember our way of living. Paul's offering to Thessalonica I was just a better person. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't sin. The same Paul who wrote this says our conduct was blameless. He also says that I'm the chief of sinners. He also says in Romans, I do the things that I don't want to do. And the very things I want to do, I find myself not doing. I'm convinced that it's not me, but sin living in me. Oh, who will save me from this body of death? It's Christ Jesus. And that is peculiar because on the one hand, Paul is saying we're holy, we're blameless, we're above board, we're, we're above reproach. And on the other hand, he is so honest about the ways that he falls short and he needs grace. And beloved, that is what we offer to the world. We don't offer the world perfectionism. We offer the world this right here. Our conduct matters. Our word, how we do our work, our presence, our patience, our faithfulness. And when we fail in front of the world, we're the first in line to own it, that I blew that. And I need grace. And I found grace in Jesus. Our confession of faith says this about good works, that our good works are done in obedience to God's commands. They're the fruit and the evidences of true and living faith. And he says, by them, we show our thankfulness to God. You want to show God that we're thankful? This confession and the Bible says, do good. And what are good works? They're defined from the scriptures and not from what other people say, that our good works, they strengthen our assurance. They teach our brothers They glorify God. They stop the mouths of adversaries. And here's the thing. They adorn our profession of the gospel for those who are watching. You hear that? Our goodness in the world decorates the gospel. And so as you play sports, And as you raise children, and as you walk your neighborhoods, and as you go to the grocery store, and as you get roofers that come over your house to roof, and as repairmen show up, that God has so intertwined our lives that oftentimes our conduct speaks before we say a word about Jesus. And that's by God's design. We can, by the power of the gospel, offer to this world better than what it sees. And that will be an apologetic. The next thing is we offer the world better words. Paul didn't just model kingdom citizenship and think that his behavior alone worked. He had something to talk about. 
that if you look in our passages, you'll see that it's a refrain that he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained the scriptures. He proved the scriptures. He persuaded them from the scriptures. In verse 4, go down to chapter 17 and look at verse 11, that the Jews in, in, in Berea were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures. In other words, what Paul is doing is is teaching God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, we thank God for this, that when you receive the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. And the language there that it says he reasoned with them and explained and he proved That is not just vomiting Bible verses. That the language here is is persuasion, of reasoning, of question and answer. Can I show you this? What are you hearing God say about this? Is it clear? Okay, well, tell me why it's not clear. Okay, well, let's look at something else. Okay, that's enough for today. Let's take a break and let's let the Holy Spirit work on you and we'll come back the next week. In other words, what Paul is doing here is reasoning, explaining, improving, and persuading. Now, why? Why would he go there and reason, not from the New Testament because it hadn't been formed yet, but from the Old Testament? That That would have been his scriptures then because I think there's a contrast a showdown that's happening. Look at what the wicked men of Rabble and the Jews said about Paul and Jason. It says they're turning the world upside down. This is equivalent to a disturbing the peace charge. But then look at that next phrase. It says that they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now, the decrees, that's the word there. That word is where we get our word dogma from. It can mean what seems right, principles of good conduct. It can even mean doctrine. And it can also mean a command from the emperor to be followed throughout his kingdom in a specific moment in time. And this is the way that it's used in Luke 2. Remember in Luke 2, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. So that's a point in time, a one-time decree that goes out. Decree can be used that way, but it can also be used in a different sense. What's good and what's right? And the fact that this is plural, the decrees plural of Caesar, what they're really saying is that these men are acting against what Caesars have said is the right way to live. In other words, there's a showdown. You have the Roman Caesars 
and they're on their fifth one, which began with Julius Caesar. And his lineage have all been Caesars and emperors in Rome ruling over the territory. And every time a new Caesar or a new emperor comes to power, there are decrees that are enacted and they become policy. And what's happening here in Thessalonica is a showdown that the Caesars have made certain rules. This is how life works. And what Paul is doing is bringing the word of God and the scriptures to bear. And what those jealous Jews are saying is that Paul over here with the scriptures, he's conflicting and working against what the the Caesars have said is true. In other words, what you have here is a clash between worldview. And if you look and do a deep dive into the rules of conduct, the worldview of the Caesars, it's very disjointed, fatalistic, immoral, mythological, incoherent, and pluralistic. And Paul is offering true reality. Greg Kokel, in his book, The Story of Reality, he says Christianity is a worldview. It's a particular way of viewing the world, but Christianity isn't the only worldview. It has competition. And every religion and every secular philosophy claims to represent reality in a true and accurate way. Every person has in their mind, listen, this is so important, y'all look at me. Every person has in their mind a story about the way the world is, even if they have not worked it out completely. You can hear it when people say things like, this is the way that I look at things, or this is what I think the correct view is, or there ought to be a law about this, or that was the right thing to do in that situation. What they're doing is unpacking their belief system. Now, every worldview wants to answer four questions. How do we get here? Why is the world in the shape that it's in? How do we fix what is wrong with the world? And what does the world look like when repair takes place? Think about that. Those are, those are some important questions. How did I get here? Why does the world look like it looks? And then what can be done to fix it? And what does a redeemed world look like when it has been repaired? That worldviews are seeking to answer those questions, even if we don't have it all worked out. And Caesar had a worldview. He's a God. And there are multiple gods. And the multiple gods need to be appeased. And if you're about to take a trip, you appease this God. If you want to have children, you appease this God. If you want your business blessed, you appease this God. That their worldview, beloved, was so fractured and broken and fragmented. And what Paul is showing up in Thessalonica and saying is, no, it's not it. There's a better word that we have from God's word that makes sense of reality, that makes sense of the world. The Bible can tell you 
how things began and how you got here. The Bible will tell you why things are in the shape that it's in. The Bible will tell you how will things be repaired and who will repair it. And the Bible will tell you what will it look like when restoration fully comes. You won't find it in a decree of Caesar. You won't find it in these other religions. You won't find it in these other worldviews. What Paul is saying is you find the answer to life's deepest questions right here. Right here. And so he reasons from the scriptures, persuades from the scriptures. And notice what he does. He reasons and persuades that it was necessary that the Christ should come. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer. It was necessary that the Christ should die. And it was necessary that the Christ be raised from the dead. And I'm here to tell you that your scriptures, our scriptures, thousands of years ago, that it's one story written by a majestic God. It's coherent and it's clear and it makes a lot of sense. And what Paul is saying is if you go back and look at our scriptures, What our scriptures will tell you is that one from above had to come. And I'm here to tell you that that one who had to come, who had to suffer, who had to live, who had to die, who had to be raised, it's the historical Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. What he's saying is in the world, it's fracture and their philosophies are broken. It's like a puzzle thrown on a table. And what people are trying to do is to make sense of those questions and they're arranging the puzzle. They're trying to make it fit, but their worldviews don't fit. But through Jesus, it does. He's the one from the law and the prophets and the writings who's promised to come. Through him we understand that this world was made upright because he was there, he made it. All things were made through him and by him and for him that he upholds all things together with the word of his power. He was there in the beginning. He was there when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. He was there when the father promised Eve that I will send a son born of you who will crush the head of the serpent. He was there when God made a promise to Abraham through you, the world will be blessed. He was there when Isaiah wrote his song, his, his, his chapters about the suffering servant. He was there when it was promised that a virgin would give birth like Jesus Christ is it's the picture that he's the telos he's the end game of where everything is moving in redemption and what Paul is saying to them he's come and we don't know where Paul went we don't know what passages he reasoned with them but he could have gone to numerous places Genesis Exodus he could have talked to them about the Passover about blood shed for one so that the many might be pardoned. He could have talked to them about Abraham and Sarah, this immaculate conception. And Jesus could have, Paul could have been saying, hey, that was nothing. God did that back then to open the womb of that woman when they were well beyond childbearing years to do something so much greater that he would even use a virgin, a virgin that Isaiah promised. He could have went to Jonah, that as Jonah was in the belly of the the, the fish for three days, so the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth. Like, Like Paul had the full panoply of Scripture. He says, look, I can take you anywhere, any book, any verse, and we're going to talk about Jesus in it. 
because there is consistency, coherency, majesty in the scriptures. Only the Bible answers those four basic questions. And what Paul is telling them in Thessalonica is that it's here. We offer the world a better word. They're watching the news. They're getting into ancient Near Eastern mystical religions. They're burning sage. They're doing all this other stuff, y'all. And what they're really searching for is the majesty of this right here. And what God calls us to do is to not lose heart. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We go back to the Bible and we reason and we explain and we re-explain and we pray and we let it breathe a little bit like Paul stayed there some months probably and let it breathe a little bit and he shows back up. We have the words of life. We have a better word. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that I'm sure many of you have heard, but he's talking about a lion, a lion being in a cage. And he says, I see numerous men up to attack the lion. And I see a host of people coming to defend the lion. And others are talking about uh, what to do, what weapons we might gather. He says, pardon me, might I make this suggestion to you? Open the door and let the lion out. The lion will defend himself. He needs you not to defend him. You know what Spurgeon is talking about? The word of God. Let it out. Let it out. That's what we offer to the world, is a better word. The last thing we offer to the world is a better king. From the earliest of ages, beloved, we grow accustomed to living under the authority of others. Children born into a home, students who go to a classroom, employees under bosses, athletes under their coaches, citizens in society under mayors and governors and policemen and policewomen and presidents. One of our Ten Commandments tells us that our posture should be to honor those in authority over us. And it doesn't take long in any of those situations to realize that those in authority over us will often fall short. Have we not blown it as parents and repent to our children? And do we not ultimately want them to know their father who is in heaven, who is such a better father than I am? Don't we want them to know their older brother, Jesus, who is such a better sibling? And so it makes sense that when Paul comes to Thessalonica, that they're living under the rule of Claudius Caesar. And we, we believe that it's Claudius Caesar who's ruling right now, because if you turn over to Acts 18, that when Paul begins to, when he meets Aquila and Priscilla, it, he tells us that, that he meets them in Corinth because Claudius Caesar had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. So this dates historically because Claudius Caesar was the Caesar from 41 to 51 AD. So we can date what's happening here in that time frame. And what Paul is doing is just saying, hey, y'all, 
You got a better king than the one sitting in Rome. Now, Caesars were complex leaders that by God's common grace, they did some common good. Yet history tells us all of them were cruel and selfish and arrogant and partial and swayed by pleasure and power. More than anything, they were mortal. Their reigns always ended. And when one died or was killed, chaos ensued and the people braced for what the next Caesar would do. And it is up against this backdrop of competing kings that Paul says Jesus is a better king. Now, a man by the name of Ben Witherington, he has a really great book on the socio-rhetorical backdrop of the book of Acts. And here's what he writes. He says, Paul urged them to turn from their idols, which would have been statues of the emperor. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.9. That he urged the Jews to recognize that Jesus was God's anointed one. And that's up and against Caesar being a god. He preaches about the return of King Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4. He preaches that Jesus is God's son, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus is said to be the one who brings the Thessalonians into God's own kingdom and glory, chapter 2, verse 12. While the emperor had offered the world peace and security, Paul attacks such notion, saying that the Christ would be coming back to disrupt the peace and bring judgment upon unprepared humans, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. What Witherington does, what he says is this, this is competition language. That when you think about the epistles, the ones that talk the most about the return of Jesus, the reign of Jesus, his victory over death, it's First Thessalonians. Now lay that on top of this passage. What's the charge that they're lodging against Paul? They charge Paul with treason. They say that he are, he's acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And what Paul does, let me show you how he's a better king. That is true. Now, what he's saying is that the king your hearts were made for has come, is ruling, and will soon come again. And he's not in Rome. He's at the right hand of God. Our world is upside down, and our king is turning it right side up. And we could focus on an infinite number of ways that Jesus is a better king but to be fair to the text, I'm going to focus on three. Here's the first. Jesus shows that he's a better king by restoring dignity to women. Now, think about the role of women in ancient Rome. They were citizens and could not vote or hold political office. Because of their limited public role, women are mentioned less frequently than men by Roman historians. 
that there is evidence to suggest that a girl's education was limited to the elementary school level. The lives of boys and girls began to diverge dramatically after they formally came of age, and memorials to women recognized their domestic qualities far more than their intellectual achievements. I'm no, I'm no, I'm, I'm no expert on ancient women, Roman culture, but you can go read Dr. Hurley's book on men and women in biblical perspective. I would commend that to you. Now, lay that on top of what we saw last week. Whose house did Paul go into in Philippi? A woman. Whose house is he in this week? Jason, a man. Last week, who got a household baptism? Lydia. Who else got a household baptism? The man, the jailer. Look at our passage closely. Look at verses 4 and verses 12. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few leading women. Now go down. Go down to chapter 12. I mean, uh, verse 12 and 13. Many of them therefore believed. And now notice the word order is switched. He doesn't do men and then women. Now the order is switched with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. You guys, this, would, this was intentional. And what Luke is doing in these two chapters in the book of Acts is showing that what King Jesus is doing in a world that de-dignified and devalued women, in a world that said you can only be homemakers, in a world that said we don't value you for your intellect, in a world that says we will not mention your name in our history books, what King Jesus is doing is like, we're turning things right side up. And this is going to be men and women, co-laborers and co-heirs in the kingdom. And Jesus is pleased to call and redeem and to use and to serve and to bless and to love. This ain't me speaking. This is Jesus speaking. He's that kind of king. When the Caesars are abusive and belittling, when he writes history, Luke, put them in there. They will be seen and valued and heard. That's one way he's showing that King Jesus is a better king. Another way you see Jesus as a better, better king is because of where these things take place. Thessalonica, and I got this from R.C. Sproul, Alexander the Great had a sister named Thessaly. Thessaly's husband renamed this city because a battle was fought there. An important battle was won there. That he renamed it Thessalonica. What Paul is doing is reminding them, you know that history. And I'm here to tell you, there's a king who fought a better battle. And it was not here. It was on Calvary. That king has triumphed over sin and death and destruction and the grave. This king is not like the Caesars. His kingdom will never have an end. This king is returning for you. This king will make all things right. He's a better king. 
He's a better king because he's conquered death and has victory over the grave. You might remember 1 Thessalonians is one of my favorite chapters to preach at a funeral. It is in that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, Brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed and grieve as those who have no hope. Remember that? We believe that Jesus lived and we believe that Jesus died. We believe that Jesus has ascended. And we believe this, that those who die in him are with him right now. And one day when the archangel blows the trumpet and the clouds break open, King Jesus is returning and the dead in Christ and their souls will be with him. And if we are fortunate enough to be alive when Jesus returns, we will watch their bodies come out of the grave and be united with their souls and with Jesus in the air. And then we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and we will be gathered up with them to meet them in the air and we will be with them forever in the presence of Jesus, Paul says, comfort one another with those words. In other words, you have a better king, Christian, because guess what? You are invincible. You will live forever in the presence of God. All that is wrong will be made right when Jesus returns. Remember this. We offer the world better conduct by God's grace. We offer the world a better word by God's grace. And we give to the world the king their hearts were made for by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will indeed uh, write these truths in our hearts Father, as we think about mission and what we do in the presence and in the company of those who don't know you, Father, I pray that you will work these truths and these convictions and these beliefs into our own hearts in private. Make us, Lord, a people who are captivated by your conduct, your behavior. Make us, Lord, a people who see the beauty and the majesty in your word. Make us, Lord, a people who know Christ as our King, our Master, our Lord. And Father, help us to do missions as an overflow of what we have, have experienced in our own walks with you. Do this that we might forever praise your name. Amen.